0: Kevin Rothrock here, host of The Naked Pravda, with a special request. If you value Medusa's reporting, whether in English or Russian or both, please consider making a donation at support.medusa.io to help sustain our work. Thank you and enjoy the show. Hello there, you're listening to The Naked Pravda. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, Medusa's English Language Managing Editor. And on today's show, you'll hear from two women who helmed a remarkable new project that seems to grow more relevant with each passing day. It's called the Ambassadorial Series, and it comes from the Monterey Initiative in Russian Studies at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies in Monterey, California, a beautiful city. Truly lovely. If you ever get a chance to visit, I very much recommend it. The Institute's website describes the ambassadorial series as one of a kind. And that is no exaggeration. In depth interviews with eight of the living former U.S. ambassadors to Russia and the Soviet Union. Each conversation featuring personal reflections and recollections on high stakes negotiations, as well as discussions about a range of geopolitical issues that still dog today's relations between Moscow and Washington. The first interviews were released last year in 2021. And a follow-up series with America's key 1990s ambassadors came out just last month in January 2022. Altogether, there are nearly 16 hours of footage, and the Middlebury Institute has made it all available in YouTube videos, podcast episodes, and written transcripts. It's a massive undertaking, and I spoke to the project's two hosts to find out what they learned from talking to the men who were in the room, so to speak, when history was made. The first installment of the series features interviews with all eight former ambassadors. Jack Matlock, who was in office from 1987 to 1991. Thomas Pickering, 1993 to 1996. James Collins, 1997 to 2001. Alexander Vershbow, 2001 to 2005. John Beryl, 2008 to 2012. Michael McFall, 2012 to 2014. John Teft, 2014 to 2017. And finally, John Huntsman, 2017 to 2019. The host of this first part is Jill Dougherty, an adjunct professor at Georgetown University, a fellow at the Wilson Center, and CNN's former Moscow bureau chief. I asked her, how did this project come together?
1: Middlebury at Monterey really pulled this together. And they had the idea that it would be very useful for history and for people who are interested in the Soviet Union and then Russia to really have a chance to listen to the U.S. ambassadors to the former Soviet Union and to Russia, and to get into, let's say, the high points of what they covered when they were working there, but also their impressions about Russia, their, let's say, suggestions for people who might be ambassadors to Russia in the future. And they asked me to do it, and I was really, really happy because I knew all of them to a certain extent, you know, some I knew quite well some I had encountered many years ago, but still kept in touch. So it was personally very intriguing and and actually touching, I can say, to talk with them. And each one was very different. So it's a repository, both on the Middlebury at Monterey site, but it has popped up in many other places where you can access it. It's really fantastic. And we decided to do it both as video. So we did video interviews by Zoom during the early days of COVID. And so that was kind of like, early Zoom days, can you hear me, is the lighting good? And then we made audio recordings from that, and then also did transcripts. So you have three different platforms that you can access, and I find the transcripts are extremely useful both for historians and just people who are interested.
0: The second installment of the ambassadorial series focuses on the 1990s and revisits the experiences and insights of ambassadors John Matlock, Thomas Pickering, and James Collins. The host of these interviews is Dr. Hannah Noda, a senior research associate at the Vienna Center for Disarmament and Nonproliferation, where she focuses on arms control and security issues involving Russia, the Middle East, their intersection, and implications for U.S. and European policy. She described America's ambassadors during this fateful decade as more old school realists.
2: The sequel that I just hosted and that was released here, the idea was really to say, okay, ambassadors Matlock, Pickering, and Collins represent sort of the old school of US diplomacy, perhaps less reflective of liberal internationalists, but more of sort of realist thinking and, and approach to international relations. And I think I would say to you that that more realist thinking. When it comes to Russia, is really reflected in the interviews in two ways. There's really a keen appreciation for Russian interests and the fact that those interests can be different from the West and that they evolve in an evolutionary set of conditions that wasn't static throughout the 90s and that isn't static until today.
0: Can you give me like one example so when readers hear that, that's like a, I think that's a very big idea. Like, what's like one example of, of Russian interest that changes, say? over the course of the 90s.
2: Well, for instance, the way that they looked at uh, the constitution of the Euro-Atlantic security um, structure after the end of the Cold War, you know, we we start in the early 1990s when really, and, and sort of Ambassador Matlock goes into this, what transpired in the context of the 2 plus 4 talks, sort of Germany's future in NATO, you know, at that point, these ambassadors would say the question of NATO expansion to the East wasn't even on the table. And certainly the Russians weren't thinking about it either. Then we get to the mid-1990s and things like the Partnership for Peace. Russia was part of that. Russia was, you know, also the idea that Russia might one day join NATO was on the table. And the way that they looked, I think, at that constitution and, and NATO expansion Wasn't seen as so threatening at the time, but it was certainly a concern, but it is when we get to the late 1990s and the first round of expansion and then subsequent rounds of expansions that it's increasingly sort of becoming a problem. Of course, also for a Russia that is then no longer so weak and so preoccupied with its own domestic issues that it starts to think differently about these issues. So that's sort of what I mean with evolving set of conditions, but I think the second realist element here is that these ambassadors also convey an, an appreciation for the limitations that the United States would have in the 1990s to mold Russia, you know, to mold Russia along a sort of Western liberal market economy model, just the difficulties that the West would, would face in that. I think that is also sort of a realist tenet that comes through in these, in these interviews.
0: Breaking these interviews and these ambassadors down into schools of thought, can be tricky business. I asked Jill Dougherty about the realist and liberal internationalist divides among the ambassadors in her interviews, but she was reluctant to see it this way.
1: You know, that is a great question because as I look back at them, all of them are really professionals in one way or another. Either they are career foreign service people and maybe previous ambassadors to other countries. John Huntsman, Spring Smile, there's a businessman Who was the ambassador to Singapore, China, and Russia. And then you have other very seasoned diplomats, you know, Madlock, Ambassador Madlock, and Ambassador, well, almost all of them have really deep knowledge of the region. This is not a posting that you want a novice in. So I think in terms of the way they looked at things, you know, you have to understand that ambassadors are both Representing very much representing the policy of their presidents. And they have to, they have to present that and follow it and support it. But they also are kind of the eyes and ears of the United States in Moscow. So you get this kind of dual job representing to the Russians what the United States believes and then examining, talking with people, studying, meeting with people. And, you know, the, the most important leaders in the country and bringing that knowledge and interpretation back to the United States. So I wouldn't say, to answer your question, I don't think that it's so much an evolution of the ambassadors themselves, so much as it was really kind of a reaction to what was going on in Russia as the leadership changed. I mean, those were enormous changes during the period of the ambassadors that we spoke with, it was the end of the Soviet Union, the beginning of modern Russia, and then Yeltsin up to Putin and continuing. So if you look at that, the difference between the Soviet Union and Boris Yeltsin is enormous. Then you had the other change between Yeltsin and Putin, which was also enormous. And I think, you know, I'm going back, there was a, Quote that Ambassador Collins made, quoting, in fact, his wife, who has written a very good book on Russia and their experiences. And her name is Naomi Collins. And she said, when you are in history, you don't know what comes next. And you really don't. This is, I think, you know, as I listen to these men who really know what they're talking about, many times they were en- embroiled in events that were unclear. And so sometimes they had to take decisions that were just kind of the gut feeling, like in this moment, during the coup, for example, you know. They, they had to make a decision. Do you go with the coup plots? Do you recognize them? Luckily, the ambassador, who was, uh, I believe, Ambassador Collins at the time, did not. But if you know what I'm saying, that it's not as put and dried as it might seem. And also, I do think that Pretty much all of them were on the same page in a general sense. Now, there were, the biggest differences, I think, might be you know, NATO enlargement, which remains very controversial. But on the other things, I think uh, there's a similarity.
0: The ambassadorial series covers a lot of ground. Three decades of U.S.-Russian relations. But what were the moments throughout these years that mattered the most? I asked both hosts what the key inflection points were according to what the ambassadors told them in the interviews?
2: There are a a few moments that that all the ambassadors talk to quite a bit in these interviews. I think the first one is sort of a revisiting of the end of the Cold War and the collapse of the Soviet Union. And this notion that these were separate events, um, events were very fast paced at the time, And uh, there's today this conflation that we throw it all together. We sort of almost use end of the Cold War and the collapse of the Soviet Union interchangeably as if they were all the same event, which then led to this Western notion that, you know, we won the Cold War rather than looking at it as something that was a negotiated outcome in which both sides won, which is sort of the way that Russia looked at this.
0: This conflation stood out to Jill Dougherty as well.
2: Ambassador... Madlock did talk about
1: that in quite a lot of detail, and he mentioned, he mentioned three big events that happened at the same time that he would argue had they were separate events, but we kind of tend to glom them all together. The end of the Cold War, Communist Party loses control of the USSR, and then the Soviet Union collapses. And I would say that breakdown is a little bit different from the way other people Uh, Look at it because they tend to pull them all together. But I think that essential question of why did it collapse and whose fault or who did it is is a an issue that's with us today. And President Putin has a different idea, (laughs) certainly than American ambassadors. I personally covered the White House as as a White House correspondent for CNN at the very time that the Soviet Union collapsed. And I remember, in fact, it, you know, I was no man on the totem pole. I had just started working there that year. And I had to work Christmas <laughs> and found myself you know, Christmas day working and covering the, literally the end of the Soviet Union from the front lawn of the white house. and And that debate, you know, over whether it was our fault. It was a West's fault, which seems to be now what President Putin is moving toward you know, that they wanted us to collapse, and our leaders were probably too weak to prevent it, but it was the West bringing down Russia. You know, at the time, when, as I listen to Ambassador Matlock, and then also people who were there around that time, Ambassador, well, he was, I think, DCM, but Ambassador Collins around the time, the coup against Gorbachev, and then the attack on the White House. I think they look at it in a very different way, and I tend to agree with this, that President Bush and, of course, Secretary Baker carried out some very good diplomacy to try to make sure that things didn't explode or even implode. And I give the Russian people and their leaders a lot of credit for that, especially Gorbachev, I think, when you look at that period and Yeltsin. That idea that the worry, the concern at that point was that the place really would blow up, that you would you'd have loose nukes all over the world, that you would have a civil war, a conflagration that could spread to Europe. These were the stakes at that point. And yes, you know, Reagan was building nuclear weapon was building weapons and nuclear weapons, etc. But I think when you look at how Bush handled it, at least initially, they they wanted the Soviet Union to continue in a different way, that they felt that Gorbachev could reform it and it would be a nation that could kind of be integrated into the West. That is the biggest issue right now with Ukraine. Why didn't that happen? Why didn't Russia or the Soviet Union just kind of meld into the Western security structure. This is
2: something that the ambassadors all talked about and the implications of the collapse of the Soviet Union on the level of identity of Soviet citizens. They all talk about the great economic difficulties and sort of social and domestic upheavals that Russia was going through in the 90s. I mean, they obviously all served at at different times. Pickering came in, in 1993. Collins came in in 1997, so he was there for the Russian financial crisis of 98 and the, the collapse of the ruble, but they all had this appreciation for, for what was going on at the time and the limitations, quite frankly, of the United States in, in sort of steering those events. So that is sort of one big block of themes that we talk about in the interviews and in great depth for those who are interested. Another interesting one, Kevin, is the First Gulf War. Thomas Pickering was actually U.S. ambassador at the United Nations at the time, dealing with his then still Soviet counterpart. Ambassador Matlock was in Moscow. And of course, even though Iraq had been a longstanding ally of the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union went ahead and sort of supported the United States after the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait in the context of the First Gulf War. And... It's interesting hearing these ambassadors talk about how differently the first Gulf War was perceived by the Russians compared to the second Gulf War and the Iraq invasion of 2003. You know, really a perception in Moscow at the time that the United States is doing what it is authorized to do by the UN Security Council and is not going further than that. It is acting in accordance with international law. Also, interesting to hear how personal relationships, kind of the, the Gorbachev. George H.W. Bush relationship or that between uh, James Baker and Edward Shevardnadze was was kind of important at the time. You know, and then we talk about the Kosovo crisis, which comes more towards the end of the decade. Ambassador Collins, who was on the ground in Moscow at the time, he talks about just how sensitive this issue was with the Russians. You know, this perception that a U.S. military campaign against Milosevic would kind of go against Russia's Orthodox brothers. So, so to say, in Serbia, and how deeply that that caused an issue at the level of the Russian population, and that no one, even at the U.S. Embassy in Moscow at the time, quite understood how vexing that issue would be with the with the Russian population.
0: So, you've kind of hinted at this already, but in terms of like the some of the biggest lessons or takeaways that these ambassadors now have, looking back on their their service, and you've said that the u.s it was it was important or it should be important for washington to appreciate the legitimacy of russia's own concerns i guess like to not make kind of normative judgments about what they say matters to them to just kind of you have to take that as read and work with that like that's one of the big takeaways you've you've, you've hinted at can you kind of unpack that a bit more and tell me if, if there like what were some other kind of lessons that came across in your interviews
2: what you just described as a sort of first lesson or key takeaway from the interviews, I would call it empathy, this idea that you got to put yourself in the shoes of the other and try to understand where they're coming from. Even if you do not agree with their interests, you have to respect them for what they are. I think this is something that they all emphasize in the interviews. Now, a related lesson that's not the same as empathy, but it is related, is the importance of of cultural understanding. Uh, Ambassadors Matlock Pickering and Collins all came back to that. I mean, Jack Matlock had studied the Russian language and literature extensively before he became a diplomat. Ambassador Colin, as well, he had, I think, taught Russian history at the U.S. Naval Academy um, before joining the State Department. So these were people well versed in the Russian language and the Russian literature. Matlock went on on Russian TV at times, speaking in Russian, and they all kind of say that this appreciation for Culture and the cultural context, of course, helps you in developing empathy for the other side. And here I would just say, you know, cultural understanding is not just the Russian language. It's the history, it's economic conditions, the social structure, even social meanings of words. So this was quite interesting. Ambassador Collins suggested to me, you know, when a Russian talks to you about efficiency or security, these notions might not mean the same to a Russian as they might mean to an American. An American might think about efficiency in in very economic terms. If you can produce X, Y, and Z articles for less money, that is efficient. But that's not necessarily how a Russian looks at what's efficient in that cultural context. So they came back to the importance of cultural understanding uh, writ large. And I would say maybe while Ambassador Pickering didn't have the same kind of professional and educational Exposure to the Russian language and to Russian literature as Ambassadors Collins and Matlock had. Prior to serving uh, in Russia, he had been ambassador to Jordan, Nigeria, El Salvador, Israel, and the United Nations, and India. So, probably that's as good as it gets uh, when we talk about developing kind of an appreciation for a cultural context. Another important Lesson that came up is the importance of dialogue. You know, Ambassador Matlock would share some anecdotes where he was being criticized. This is the late Soviet period for going to Latvia while there was a diplomatic spat going on between the United States and the Soviet Union over the arrest of Nicholas Danilov, this American journalist who was arrested at the time. And, you know, some criticized him for going to Soviet occupied Latvia at the time. And his point was really you got to talk even if you disagree you know i can go to latvia and make our point clear but this notion that somehow dialogue is framed as a reward of the other side is is nonsensical like how can you ever not talk
0: Over the course of U.S. interactions with Russia, we kind of, there's a shift from criminology, right? When the Soviet Union falls, Russia opens up, it's more transparent. We can rely less on this sort of tea leaf reading and more on these direct interactions and and just looking at what the Russian state is saying openly. And now we've kind of had to return a bit to criminology and, and we're we're again interpreting things that are opaque. But at the same time, there's still a lot more data and a lot more openness than there ever was under the Soviet Union. So we're living under this, this kind of coexistence of criminology and too much data. How how are US ambassadors managing this sort of this this problem of not enough information, but also too much information.
1: Well, let's go back to the Soviet days. I mean, yes, granted, there was criminology and you figured out what was going on by looking at the number of people who were on Lenin's tomb during a May Day celebration. Okay, that, that's one thing. But on the other hand, it was kind of a, a group that was deciding things. It was, you know, the Communist Party and the Politburo, etc., very opaque, but then there wasn't a lot of information, period, about world events. We had newspapers. We didn't have the internet. Now you have, obviously, any type of information. There's polling data about Russia that we never had. People can travel to Russia. We, We have a lot of information. However, I don't think that we have access to the decider the way we might have under. Yeltsin. And the decider, of course, President Putin. President Putin, I believe, uh, has limited the people around him who are really part of that decision making group. And it is very closed. And of course, we've been reading recently that under COVID, physically, it's become much more closed in. People can't see President Putin uh, unless they've been in isolation for like two weeks or something because of COVID. But the, but the point is, I'll give you an example. When I was covering Yeltsin, people were talking all over the place. He had a press secretary who would talk with us. You could get kind of leaks and in information. It was pleasantly chaotic for journalists that you could access some information. When Putin came in, he didn't, in the, in the beginning, it was really President Putin himself. Who was his own press secretary? Because he was more than capable of saying what he thought, and so that sounded good in the beginning. Wow, we can hear from the man himself. But then, as you you know, the structure of getting things, the leaks stopped. the uh, The access to him was more curtailed. The media were Russian media were shut down. So I think. You know, we, yeah, we have the internet, we have a whole lot of information, we have TikToks. Yeah, but that's not telling you what Mr. Putin is thinking.
0: You've been listening to The Naked Pravda, an English language podcast from Medusa. On today's show, we discussed the Middlebury Institute's ambassadorial series and spoke to the project's two hosts, scholar and journalist Jill Dougherty and arms control expert Dr. Hannah Nota. The Naked Prophet is a podcast from Medusa. It's our only English language show. And I hope you'll recommend us to your friends and uh, leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. It helps put this program in front of more people. Also, if you value Medusa's reporting, either in English or Russian, please consider making a donation at support.medusa.io to help sustain our work. Recurring pledges help more, but we'll take whatever you can spare. Thank you for listening and come back soon. <laughs>